Well, good morning. It's been 20 years since the Ark of the Covenant had been taken by the Philistines, since the glory of God had been removed from His people. It's been 20 years since the Lord had shown His sovereign power and authority, His absolute holiness that brought about the death of 70 men of Israel. It's been 20 years since Israel asked the question, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And last week we found out the answer was nobody, not without Christ. Only to quickly send God out of their presence. Who can stand before this God? We can't. We're going to just get rid of him then and send him to another town. It's been 20 years of idol worship, of turning away from the Lord to the false gods of the nations which surrounded them. It's been 20 years. And then finally, the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Finally, after 20 years of turning from God, they began to seek after God. And that's where we pick up now after what Luke just read in verse 7, verse 7 to the end of the chapter. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these parts. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Uh, A little bit of housekeeping. There is a car outside whose alarm is going off. I'm assuming, oh, now that I announce it, it shuts off, right? Okay, there we go. So, Israel... Israel has turned their hearts to false gods. And they got out of, uh, of the, what they got out of that was the heavy hand of the Philistines coming upon them. Now notice the comparison between this, the heavy hand of the Philistines, and the heavy hand of God that we read about last week in chapter 6. They had become the servants of the Philistines, and by saying the heavy hand of the Philistines, 
They're giving credit to God. God is the one who brought the Philistines to rule over Israel because Israel had turned from God. Israel seeking after the Lord after 20 years was not like seeking for lost keys or playing hide and seek. You know, like, oh, where is it? I'm going to try to find it. They lamented after the Lord. They mourned and they wailed. They wept and moaned bitterly for God to return to them, to be amongst them once again. This, along with Samuel's words in verse 3 about how their hearts uh, pointed to a deep, true, emotional heart change in the people. After 20 years of rejection of God, finally their hearts had been changed. They saw the folly of their ways, and they knew that it was because they had rejected God. To seek the Lord is to have a heart change. To have one's desires and affections moved from the things of this world to the things of the Lord. It's beyond going to church. It's beyond reading His Word or spending time in prayer to Him. Obviously, those are important. Those are good. But it's a desiring and a wanting and a worshiping and a praising and a glorifying of God in all that is done. It's striving to please Him, not to earn His love because we already have His love. It's a desire to please the Creator God, our Savior, the one who saved us and created us, placing Him on the throne of our heart, rejecting all other people and all other things that would challenge that rule in our life. Ultimately, seeking the Lord means serving Him alone. Words spoken out of emotion are one thing right? We all, we all understand that. In the heat of an argument, you may say something that immediately as it comes out of your mouth, you go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Or, or spoken out of emotion, like, I am absolutely going to do this. Uh, for instance, one can claim to want to lose weight and be healthier, right? Man, I really want to do that. And then the time comes for you actually to, you know, exercise and not eat Panera, the question is, will you actually do it? You can say you want to be healthier, but your heart and what's really going on in the inside reveals whether you really want to or, you know, you're like, ah, it'd be nice, but I'm really not willing to put the work into it. If Israel is truly repentant and lamenting their disobedience and rejection and rebellion and adulterous actions against the Lord, against God, then they've got to prove it. They have to show him. Do you really mean what you're saying? Or are you just allowing your emotions to take control of you? Do you just not like what's happening right now? You know, the classic, Lord, if you get me out of this or you do this for me, I will do whatever you want of me. Like, we understand that, right? Like, place whatever you want at the end of that. It's like you're making a deal with God and then it happens and then the rubber meets the road. Are you actually going to do it? And so God says, prove it. Get rid of all of your idols. Stop worshiping false gods and turn your hearts to the Lord. They must prove through their actions that they serve the Lord alone. 
What does alone mean? Alone. That doesn't mean like, you know, first with a, you know, second over here, you still worship this. No, Christ alone, the Lord alone, that there is no other one who is given access to their heart's affections. Prove it. And Israel does exactly that. They put away all of their idols, mourning over and confessing their sin before the God. They actually show him this is what we desire. This is what we want. But here's the question I had to ask myself this week. Why after 20 years, like you have 20 years of worshiping false gods and suddenly after 20 years, you're like, yeah, we need a change. Why? Why, why now? Why serve him now? What moved the people to desire God after rejecting him for so long and serving dead and worthless gods? What has happened? Because, you know, if you got a dead and worthless God, you would think it would take, you know, no less than a year maybe, Right three weeks, that, oh, I'm praying to this God and nothing's happening. Maybe I should stop worshiping him, worshiping him and worship Yahweh. No, it took 20 years of this. Why now? Well, the Bible gives us a hint. Scripture gives us a hint as to what, he's, uh, what the meaning behind this and why it's happening. It says, if you are returning, these are the words of Samuel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so he says, prove it, right? Show me that you're going to do this. Well, why are they wanting to do this now? It's because they have the hand of the Philistines over them. The people were growing weary under the power and the authority of the Philistines, and their only hope of relief was by the hand of the Lord, the very one that they had rejected for so long. And they knew it. They saw it. They realized it. They're tired of being slaves to the Philistines. And they want to change. When the Philistines find out about Israel's gathering at Mizpah, they muster their army and interestingly enough, the last time we are told of a battle between Israel and the Philistines, Israel put their hopes in the Ark of the Covenant, not in Yahweh himself. They made an idol of the Ark, thinking if we just bring this box in, then we're going to beat the, the Philistines. I mean, it, it worked when we conquered the land of Canaan. Why can't it work now? Well, God disciplined them. He didn't go with them, and the Ark was taken from them. Here, though, they turn to God. They cry out to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. You see the difference there. Let's go get the ark that will save us. And now they say 20 years later, Samuel, cry out to God in our place. Cry out for us so that he will save us. And God answers them. Samuel offers a lamb as a sacrifice. He cries out for the sake of Israel. And it says, The Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. 
Often in Scripture, the, pr- the presence of God is accompanied with thunder and loud trumpet sounds. You think of like in the book of Exodus when God comes down on Mount Sinai and, and He's speaking to Moses. And as God's speaking, it's heard by the people as this loud thunder and sound of trumpets, just this loud caco- cacophony of noise. This is God's presence going before them. In the battle with the Philistines, God fights for Israel. They say, we want to worship you. We want to serve you. Now fight for us. They didn't say, if you fight for us, we will follow you. They said, we are following you. Now go fight for us, Lord. And he does. He does. His presence goes forward on the field of battle before any Israelites begin to fight. There's no Ark of the Covenant present. God himself, his presence is there to fight for his people and his defeat of the Philistines, his defeat of the Philistines, is so great that they never again enter the territory of Israel. Like, it's not just this, you know, I'll defeat them today, but next week they're going to come back and, you know, teach you a lesson. No, God completely defeats the Philistines. They never, they never enter, ter- enter the territory of Israel, which means... There's still battles, okay? We're, we're going to be getting to those. David fights the Philistines. Saul fights the Philistines. All of that happens, but the point of this is that the Philistines never take over Israel's territory again. They are, they are a, a nation of themselves with God as their king. He gains, uh, Israel gains deliverance and freedom from their enemies. Not by their might, but by the might of God. They tried it for 20 years on their own and it failed absolutely. But with God going before them, they cannot lose. The role of Samuel in this incident is important too. You know, how do we, how do we know this? Well, there's, I've said this a number of times. If something is repeated in Scripture multiple times, especially in a short amount of period of time, it's probably what? Important. So four times we hear in this passage, Samuel judged Israel. Samuel judged Israel. You hear that four times in like five verses. So if if it's said this many times, why is this important? What is so important about Samuel judging Israel? Well, the role of the judge in Israel was to be the representative between the people and God. They were to lead the people back to God during their times of disobedience, which was a lot and often. And it teach them not only what to obey, but how to obey God. They were both the religious and the political leader of the people. But Samuel is not just the judge, he's also the high priest. This is where the religious part of the rule comes in. In chapter 7, we see he calls the people to repentance He offers a lamb of a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cries out to the Lord for the people of Israel that God would accept the offering and forgive the people of their sins. He fights uh, to fight for the enemies instead of going out on their own. And then in memory of this great victory, Samuel sets up a stone and it's called an Ebenezer. Interestingly enough, the same name of the place in the last battle where Israel was utterly defeated and they lost the ark 20 years earlier. 
now God is helping them. But where before God refused to help them, because of their sin, now he intervenes, he helps them, which Ebenezer means stone of help. He helps them because of their repentant hearts. As judge, Samuel calls the people of Israel out of their sinful rebellion. As priest, he mediates between them and the Lord, offering a sacrifice and seeking the Lord's forgiveness on behalf of the people. So what what does this all mean? Well, we today are under the hands of an enemy. We are called to serve God alone. And when that happens, we receive freedom from that enemy. Not the Philistines. They're not our enemies. We, don't, we, don't, we should not think of it in, in that way. Our enemy today, again, it's not terrorists. It's not another country. It's not a group of people. The real enemy, the real enemy of humanity is sin and death. In Romans chapter 3, verse 16, Paul writes, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so we all present ourselves as slaves to something or someone. We like to think of ourselves, especially in the West, as this autonomous beings who I will make a decision and it only affects me. But the reality is, is no, we're not autonomous and it always affects everybody else around us. We are slaves to someone or something. We're either slaves to sin. Sin controls us. Sin makes temptation in our sinful hearts to stray away from God. Sin to go for the desires of us rather than the desires of God and righteousness. One leads to eternal life. One leads to eternal death. We're either slaves of God or we're slaves to sin. And like the Israelites under the hands of the Philistines, we need to have somebody to defeat our enemy. We can't do it on our own. We, we just, we, we can't. We're simply farmers without swords or bow attempting to fight an army of chariots and horses. We are Israel. We're under the hand of a powerful enemy with no means of our own to win. If we had been able to win, like Israel, we would have done it years ago. But if we're honest with ourselves, we're failing and we're getting defeated over and over and over again by the power of sin in our life. And so into this picture, into this reality of life, comes the great high priest and judge, Jesus Christ, who calls us to repentance to serve God alone, and he intervenes on behalf of us before God. Like Samuel, Jesus calls us to repent, to put away our idols, and to serve him. When asked if the suffering of a 
group of people was because they were worse sinners than those who did not suffer. Jesus answers them, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, they're thinking, well, this group of people who got killed or were hurt by, by this incident, their sin must be worse than mine because it didn't happen to me. This person has cancer. They must have done something wrong. I don't have cancer, which means I haven't sinned yet. And Jesus says, oh, oh no, that's not how things work. That's not how they, you might not have cancer, but unless you repent of your sins, you're going to perish like they did. You too will die. Now, he's obviously not talking about like, if you don't repent, you're going to get cancer and die. Jesus, as always, makes it deeper. It's not just about physical death. It's about spiritual death. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish eternally. He gets to the root and the heart of the matter. And as he went from town to town, Jesus would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus calls us to repentance, to turn away from our false gods and to serve him alone. We like to think we're more enlightened or we're better because we don't have clay statues that we bow down to when we speak to, when we pray to. But we're not any different. We still have idolatry in our world. We're just doing it a little fancier. A little bit different stuff. Leisure, money. We talked about this last week. All those things. Even God himself making a false idol of God that he's my buddy or he's my friend and and he doesn't have any wrath and he's always going to forgive me because he's a loving God. That is not the God of the Bible. It's a false God. He calls us to repentance, Jesus does, to turn away from our false gods, to serve Yahweh, the Lord God, alone. He calls us to confess our sinful rebellion against Him, to turn our heart's affections to the only one deserving of our love and our loyalty. The question remains, though, are we willing to confess our sinful rebellion? Are we willing to actually do that? Again, We can say it all we want, but are we actually willing to do it? I could say I love my wife, but if I treat her horribly, do I really love my wife? I could say I like broccoli, but if I don't eat it, I don't like broccoli. Broccoli's horrible, by the way. But I eat it because it's healthy for me. (sighs) He calls us to confess our sins. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to let our heart's affections change? Have sin taken off the throne of our heart and God put it on it? Are we willing to confess our need for Him? That we actually need Him to forgive our sins? that we need him to fight our battle against sin and death. Now, this is not just like sinful tendencies, like, you know, I'm I'm a very jealous person, and so so I want God, I want you to help me with this. This is deeper than that. Yes, he does help us fight those battles, but we're talking about sin that means eternal death, not just sin doing bad things. This is the cause of eternal death and damnation and hell. That's the reality of what Christ came to tell us about. 
Are we willing to let him fight that battle for us? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not strong enough to fight eternal things. I'm just not. I can't do it. I fail every single time. And so when Christ comes, he's, this is what he's saying. Through me, freedom from your enemies, sin and death are found. This is why God, uh, Christ, he, he rarely talks about the here and now, like this group saying, well, are they more sinful than me? And he goes, no, no, you're just as sinful. You're just lucky God hasn't struck you dead yet. I mean, that's basically because your sin is so great. Christ came to free us from our enemies. These are not my words. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36. So a group of Jews have believed in Christ, and this is what he says to them. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So here you go. You claim to be my disciples, now do it. Do what I command. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Again, see how they're, they're thinking like physical slavery? And God's like, ah, go deeper, guys. It's deeper. How is it that you say, you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free... Jesus, you will be free indeed. If we abide in the teachings of Christ, if we sit under and accept and live by the teachings of Christ, if we love and we obey the teachings of Christ, those are proofs that we are truly disciples of Christ. Now again, do you hear this? It's not saying you need to obey Christ in order to become a son of God. It's you are a son of God. If you are a son of God, you will obey. Our obedience, the evidence that, the evidence that we truly are his disciples comes out in the way that we live our life. And we will know the truth that our only hope as slaves to sin and death is to believe in Christ as our great high priest as the great judge, as ruler over our lives. And if Christ sets us free from the power of sin and death, he says you're truly free. It's not a fake or a temporary freedom. It's a freedom that lasts for all eternity. This is an eternal matter. This is not just about whether you're going to sin tomorrow. The answer is yes. <laughs> you will. I will. But if he sets us free from the power of sin, it's a freedom that is forever. It isn't temporary. It's a freedom that lasts. It's a true freedom that truly defeats our enemies. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not you might be, it's you will be saved. From what? From the power of sin and death over your life. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right before God, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you are an unbeliever today, if you're hearing these words and, and you're, you're, you're thinking, well, how, do I, how do I stop doing this? It's been 20 years of sin, 20 years from turning from God. So how do I suddenly then change? Serving and loving God alone brings deliverance from the power of sin and death. And only Christ has the power to deliver you from that burden. He saves and then he changes forever. Our hearts, affections, our hearts, desires. He brings deliverance of us from the power of sin and death. Only Christ has that power. Only Christ can save you from the eternal consequences of your sinful rebellion. Which means, if the only way to be saved is perfect obedience, Christ did that for us. And so we serve and we love Him because He has already delivered us. If you believe, if you confess, no amount of works can fix what is broken. So do you desire to be free from the enemy? Do you desire to be free from this burden of sin? then you have to ask yourself the question, are you willing to trust Him? Are your heart's affections changed from the desires of your life and your heart ruling over every aspect of your life, which leads only to death? Or having Christ rule in your life? Will you confess your sins? Will you speak it with your mouth? And then, the power of God in you, turn away from your idols? Will you prove where your heart's affections truly lie? Confess and believe, God says, and you will be saved from the sin which so easily entangles you. Now again, don't hear that suddenly you're not going to have any issues with your sin. That's, that's not what he says. What he says is he will save you from the eternal consequences of sin, which is death, eternal death. Confess and believe. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart and you will be saved from the consequences of that sin. As a believer, you're probably saying, well, two things, Mark. I've heard this before. In fact, secondly, I've heard it from you every single Sunday. Why do you tell us this every single Sunday? And the answer always is, because we're a forgetful people. We get caught up in life. We get caught up in ourselves. Why do we come to church every Sunday? I hope and I pray it's not so that you think that God finds this enjoyable in the sense of like, well, glad Mark came this week, finally. It's about time. I think I'll love him now. We come each week on a Sunday morning. My hope and my prayer is, is because we need to be reminded as God's people our lives are not our own. They belong to Christ. So when we come and we gather on a Sunday morning, we're not singing worship songs that make us feel good. I mean, hopefully we sing a few, but not for our sake. We sing worship songs 
to worship him, not us, not our feelings, not our desires. We are called to praise and give glory to him, not to give us ooey-gooey goosebumps. Now, that might happen, but it's not going to be because we pray or we, we praise us. It's going to happen because the Spirit of God is speaking to us, is guiding us, is reminding us, convicting us, all these things. When we fellowship together, yes, we're asking, how are you doing? Why are we doing that? Why are we spending time together? It's because God calls us as God's people to continue to gather together to encourage one another, to sharpen one another, to call each other out and send, to pray for one another, to build relationships together for our sake? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's there, but ultimately because we are God's people. And you may be completely different from me in every single way, but you're my brother and my sister in Christ. That's what unifies us. And that's what gives glory to God when we pray and fellowship with one another. We hear the word of God. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm praying that when I'm standing up here, that it's not my words, that these are the words of Scripture. This is God's word. If I'm giving you my word, I'm going to lead you astray. But I pray that the Spirit is speaking through my words, this fallible mouth, this, these stupid words, these unwise words of, of Mark to proclaim an eternal truth. It's about him. It's not about me. It's not about you. Ultimately, it's about him. And so as a believer, we go, why do we need to be reminded? Because we so easily forget the truth of who we are. We are not us because of us. We are us because of him. He has saved us. And he is our king. And he is the one who rules over us. And so we must worship and submit to him, not ourselves. We need to be constantly reminded that Christ has freed us, that we belong to Him. We are not our own. He is our King. He is on the throne. He is where our heart's affections lie. And when we walk away from this place and we become overwhelmed by the things of this world, whether it's stress at work or at school or friendships being broken or hurtful things being said or financial troubles or what, I mean, just think of all the troubles of this world when those things throughout the week overwhelm us. As God's people, we must be reminded He goes before us to fight our battles for us. When we battle and we strain against the power of sin in our lives and in our hearts, what do we do as God's people? We lean into the truth. I belong to Christ. Christ is my king. And nothing can remove us from his love. What does nothing mean? Nothing. There's no power in this world can, you can remove me as a child of God. There's no sin I can commit that can remove me from being in the family of God. I mean, remember that as God's people. Do you understand how awesome that is? This holy God has come to earth and saved us. And it's not a temporary salvation. It's an eternal salvation. 
nothing can remove us from his love. And his power through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit is alive and is well in us. That when we, when we get home today, more than likely, there's a pretty good high. If you're watching football, you're going to sin. I'm just telling you, right? Or you're just going to be alive this afternoon. You're going to sin. That sin does not define us as God's people. It should grieve us when we rebel against God, but it doesn't remove us from God. Through the power of Christ, he fought that battle for us. And so maybe eternally we are saved. In the here and now when we sin, it's again repentance. Repent that sin. Confess it to God. He has already forgiven it, but our relationship with him could be restored in that moment, in the here and now, so that we can continue to live for Christ, to remember that it's his power in us that guides us. And when we fail, that he picks us up and he says, just come back to me. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. You are a prodigal. In that moment, you're the one who's walked away from God and he's begging you to come back and when he sees you, he runs to you and he welcomes us as his people. So how do we do this? Okay, we, we love this five-step process. I actually saw, I was uh, doing um, uh, devotions this morning and I happened to see, I don't know if anybody has the Bible app, One Bible or Holy One or something, I don't know, I can't remember. It's, it's got a bunch of versions or uh, uh, versions of devotions and stuff on there. And one of them was the six steps to leadership, the six steps to holiness, the five steps to becoming whatever. What are the steps that the Bible speaks of as God's people? There is no six-step process. In fact, it's a lifelong process. You can't just do six things and then all of a sudden everything's going to be wonderful and you're never going to sin again. No, because you're always sinning and God is always exposing your sin. Always. It's a lifelong process. So when we go through this, if this is the rest of our life, he reveals sin to us and we confess it. What do we have to do? Well, we lean into the means of grace. We mean, lean into reading God's word to see what does he say about this? What is he teaching us about life, about us. It's praying to him, speaking to him, asking for forgiveness, asking for strength to fight the battle of sin, knowing he is already one. It's gathering with the people of God regularly to sharpen, encourage, to convict one another out of love for the sake of making God great in our, in our life. To be reminded that Christ has truly set us free from sin. It seems strange that you say, well, serving actually brings freedom. But again, the reality is, is we're slaves to someone or something. And only being slaves to God actually brings the true freedom that we all want and this world is craving but can never get. 
As God's people, it's to be reminded that we are to give Him the glory that is due for our freedom and bask in the grace of God and say, I am not enough, but you are. And so I praise you and glorify you for being my God and loving me in the midst of this fight. May we confess, may we believe, may we turn to him, may we fight not through our own strength, but through the fight of God who has already gone before us as his people. May we always be reminded, and I will until the day that I die, remind myself and remind each of us that Christ has set us free by dying on the cross for our sins. Sin no longer has authority over us. If we give in to sin, it's because we've allowed it to. Because he's already defeated it. Thanks be to God that when I go home and I sin this afternoon, I know that God has already won. I know the end game. And I find joy in that. It's a burden that's released from my shoulders. Not to continue to sin, but to realize that when I sin, God has already taken me out of it. Again, for his glory and for his glory alone. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for him becoming our high priest to intervene for us, to make the sacrifice for us to you, to cry out to you, to save us, and you answer. Father, may we confess our sins as your people and may May those who don't know you confess their need for you and how they have been rebellious to you. And may we believe in our hearts that your son is the only way to freedom and that when we believe, we're not temporarily made free. We are free indeed forever. Not because of our greatness, not because of our goodness, not because we're so awesome, but because you are and because you have done it for us. You did what we could not. And so, Father, by your power in us, help us to do fight sin, to confess, and remember that you have already defeated our enemy, sin and death, for all eternity. Father, we glorify you. We praise you. May we see what you have done and what you're about to do and remember you are our help. You are our Ebenezer. And in you and in you alone we trust. In your name, amen. Why don't you stand as we sing our final song?